0: Hi, everybody. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another edition of The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg. Um, uh, We're going to jump right into a conversation I just had with Ben Sasse. Uh, I know that's really stretching the guest profile here, but uh, he had just had lunch with the president up on Capitol Hill, and we thought it would be fun to talk. And because you know, some people have had just too much sass. Uh, we decided we'd also have my friend and colleague from National Review, David French, on to talk about the pressing issue of the zombie apocalypse. So he'll come on after that. And then at the end, we'll do a little bit of uh, listener feedback, and we'll be out of here. Thanks for tuning in. All right. for We wanted to really go, like crazy outside the box and get, you know, some some interesting new stuff going on here and bring back Senator Ben Sasse um, to the uh, Remnant podcast. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's good to be part of the Remnant.
1: Thank you for the invitation to the breaking in of the (laughs) Escaton.
0: So do you have, are you rooting for a team in the World Series?
1: Uh, I'm an American League guy, and since no American League team made the World Series, uh, I don't know what to do right now, actually. It's the first World Series, I think, in U.S. history where there hasn't been an American League team.
0: If I had anything close to the (laughs) expertise to correct you on this, I would, but I have no idea.
1: Um, (laughs) That's funny. I didn't actually think that it might be possible that you wouldn't get that joke. uh, (laughs) Yeah, so Houston Astros are sort of a staple of the National League from the beginning of time, and now they've switched to the American League and then bizarrely won as soon as Sports (laughs) Illustrated predicted they would. Have you seen the cover from three years ago? in 2014 when I saw, SI I, saw it
0: on it. T- I saw it on Twitter. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So there I, used, I thought it was a parody. You, no, no, there used to be a sports illustrated jinx that if ever sports illustrated, put your college football team on the cover as the number one team and never going to lose that they would immediately lose the next week to Northern Illinois. Um, and it would always be the most devastating, humiliating loss ever. And it followed the SI cover jinx. In 2014, Houston started this new kind of money ball theory, and Sports Illustrated put them on the cover, but not the great team of today, but it had them winning the World Series in 2017. It's pretty pretty <laughs> extraordinary. And then they made the World Series in 2017.
0: But, I mean, how much of that is Sports Illustrated, and how much of that is the fact that Donald Trump touched the orb? I mean, it seems to me that, that, that anything, everything that's weird should happen now, right? I mean, yeah, that's I the real the world we live in. I think you're proposing making baseball curses great again. I'm on board. I'm going to get the hat made up. Well, it's funny you mentioned this because I actually, even though I, you know, I used to be a big, not a big sports guy, but I used to follow sports a lot more closely and I was too much of a screw up. And when I decided to get my life together, sports is one of the things I kind of put on the back burner. So I'm now the kind of fan that people hate that I only sort of tune in for like the championship games and I pick a team to root for at the last minute. And so People like you think I'm a horrible person, but um, I actually am a big believer, and I've written about this a few times. I'm a big believer in these curses. I think um, I was really upset about the curse of the Bambino going away and, and the, the, the 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 what was it, the, the Billy Goat curse, right? Because I like a little sort of mystery and weirdness in society, and I think that these things, they're useful sort of, uh, you know, bits of, you know, mystery. And um, when they go away, the world just becomes, you know, it's, it's as Max Weber would say, it's part of the disenchantment of the
1: world. And it makes me sad. But, yeah, uh, no, I, I, I can agree with this. I mean, there's some knowing you said I hate, hate you for this. I, I mean, let's be clear, I have antipathy towards you for lots of other reasons. This isn't one of them. But if if you're going to sort of affirm the virtues of having shared misery that we all know the story of Northwestern or Columbia at football in the 1980s, not winning a game for four and a half years. We have a high school in Nebraska that hadn't won a football game in five years and they finally got a win last week. And because they're, you know, 14 to 18 year old kids, I'm actually glad for them. But the idea of college and pro sports having negative dynasties, I I can affirm that I'm with you that parody ending all those hundred year curses. It's kind of sad. When Mm -hmm. you earlier said you believed in curses, I thought you meant in a kind of metaphysical way you were going to, Barrier Your Soul, and I was worried about that. But liking no, the I, curses? I, I agree. I won't go there, but, you know, I, I, one of the
0: more famous early G-files I wrote was to send things like that ever achieve anything that could fairly be called fame was I had a contest for readers of what the most Burkean line from Animal House was, and and everyone guessed wrong, because the most Burkian line from Animal House was during the trial where, what's his name, I guess it's, 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 it's Hoover, He's the lawyer, right? Um, he's, I think that's right. Yeah, and he says, but sir, the Delta House has had a long tradition of existence in the community. <laughs> and um, you know, and things that have just been around for a long time should stay around for a long time because sort of out of emergent order, society bends around them and takes them in and considers them part of the warp and woof of our culture. And I think you know, these kinds of curses – and plus, you know, it is good to hate Boston. And so I didn't want the Curse of the Bambino to go away. Um, And I was furious at the New York Times, which was a partial owner of the Boston Red Sox and did not reveal it and was claims to be the hometown paper of the of New York City, editorially endorsed a win for the Red Sox because they just thought it would be nice for them to have a win. And
1: I just think that's, think that's awful. Yeah, no, that is awful. It'd be far better for an editorial to be written to, like, get a bucket of goat's blood and driving to your rival team's city and sprinkling it in a way to make sure the curse endures. Yeah, I don't, I don't get why you would propose that your, your rival team win a game because you feel bad for them. This is this is the uh, honorary uh, fourth-grade soccer trophy for everybody. view of pro sports is bad.
0: That's right. That's right. So how much of your time do you spend, obs- I mean, other than I know the Nebraska thing and you have to do that because you dry up and blow away in, the, in a cold, stiff Nebraska wind if you didn't follow, you know, Nebraska football. But how much of your free time would you say, take kids out of it and, well, that's it. How much of your free time do you spend following sports, would you say? Well,
1: I mean, first I just want to argue with the assumption in your question that I have to do that about Nebraska. It's in my being. I mean, the last time that I sobbed really, really hard for days uncontrollably was January 2nd, uh, 1984, and it lasted for like 72 hours. Nebraska was the best team in the country by far and lost to Miami in the national championship game because back then college football couldn't be played on Sunday. So the bowl games were played on January 2nd that year in 84 after the 83 season, and we lost on a two-point conversion uh, as time expired. And if we'd kick the extra point, we would have won the national championship because we were so far ahead of everybody else. But you play to win the game, not just to win the, the voters championship. And honestly, I I was 12 or I was about to turn 12 and I balled for like three days straight. So that's it was like in my being that can't, you can't not be a Nebraska fan when it's a religious part of your upbringing. But I would say so that's, that that's, like that's very
0: much like how much I cried when Spock died in Wrath of Khan, just so we can sort of be on the same wavelength
1: here. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I really don't even know what that means. But uh, we, I, I, partly because I have three little kids, and partly because I have geography and my home in you know different time zones. Um, I get to spend way less time on sports. But one of the saddest reasons I think that we spend less time on common culture sports is because that we've had so much fragmentation of of teams and types of sports like i don't mean to directly uh, attack soccer and lacrosse fans in your audience um, but what what clearly happens at local high schools is you have more and more and more sports and it's great that more and more kids get a chance to participate but it means that kids play in less sports in common and when i was in junior high so my dad was a football and wrestling coach in nebraska when i was growing up Um, when i was in junior high we had eight because we, we were eight deep on the depth chart at the skilled positions, offensive and defensive line. And linebacker didn't go all the way to eight. But we had eight people at quarterback and eight people for right and left running back. And we had eight people at flanker and wingback. And so what happened was everybody in town was a part of the small-town gym or small-town stadium on a Friday or Saturday night culture. And everybody had that in common. And so I know this wasn't true everywhere in America, but obviously, as you fragment to more and more sports, there's less and less common. And so there's less reason to follow your teams. And so when you're also commuting for work, I do far less now. But I basically um, I I wouldn't own a television uh, if it weren't for sports. I haven't I haven't watched a, a regular episode of tv probably since seinfeld went off the air 17 19 years ago whatever so the sports are all but i uh probably for you know 15 minutes at bedtime uh when i'm sleeping in my office or in dc and i don't have a wife around uh or you know for 15 20 minutes as you're migrating through the gym uh in the morning to get ready um i only do you know espn and sports then but i don't i don't get to follow it like i used to and i'm i'm sad about it it's the decline of a common culture
0: we are, we are, we are, we are, we are very different people. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's probably apparent because you're a senator and I'm a pseudo intellectual, demi Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But did you, anyway, just, did you
1: just say the term? I just want to be clear because uh, my phone was breaking up a little bit, and in case I need to hang out now, did you just use the term demi Jew? I did. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means, and I just like to disassociate myself from the comments of the New Yorker transplanted Virginian or vir- yeah, Virginian just, or Marylander that you are. I don't, I don't know what you said, but I, I reject it.
0: Okay, I, I, just for the edification of our listeners, I, my mother's not Jewish, so for uh, lots of Jews that means I'm not Jewish. But I was raised Jewish. Uh, every Sunday, I went for long walks to Murray's sturgeon shop with my dad to get lox and bagels where he would explain to me why Stalin was a really bad guy. And I went to Rodef of Sholem day school, uh, where nice parents on in the 1970s sent their kids to be raised Jewish, but not too Jewish um, because it was the first reformed Jewish day school in the country. And I was bar mitzvahed, but every now and then I'll meet, it's funny. I meet a, you meet certain kinds of conservative Jews who I respect for their, their, their religion and their faith. Who get very insistent that I'm not Jewish because of the matrilineal thing, and then I'll also meet a certain kind of Christian who gets really angry about the idea that I'm Jewish for reasons I've never really been able to figure. Out. They want they want to enforce Jewish law on me, sort of by proxy, and I've ne- I just never really understood the psychology of it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, still, and- I'm,
1: I'm still I'm still. I'm still diagramming the family tree, so I'm a little bit confused. But for the record, I'd like to say even non-Jews or non-demi-Jews can agree with your dad about Stalin's viciousness.
0: (laughs) Um, Fair enough. And uh, anyway, we don't need to get too deep in the weeds on theology. So one of the reasons why we're talking to you, I had hoped that you were going to give me a really good exegesis on the premiere of Walking Dead. But it turns out you're useless for that. So we're going to have David French come on and talk about that instead to to do those those jobs that american senators won't do so instead I, I i'm under the understanding that you were at this uh this this policy seminar come lunch with the president of the united states today up on capitol hill
1: yeah the president came to lunch today so maybe context republicans and democrats split up uh, over lunch. Democrats have lunch together twice a week. Republicans, we have a whole lot of Republican uh, ism and stuff to do. Republican hugging, bro hugs, it's weird. Uh, Tuesday Can you guys be like trust Wednesday. Lots of you know, trust like- falls. Uh, I, had to catch, I had to catch Luther Strange today. I, I tore some ligaments, uh, but lots of trust falls at the Republican lunch. Uh, sort of 60 to 90 minutes, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. The only time that we huddle um, on a partisan basis, separating uh, in the week. And it's sw- supposed to be a strategy session, usually. Um, we, we usually don't discuss uh, a lot that's all that interesting, because too much of it is scripted, and people sort of pretend that it's not scripted, and yet everybody knows that it's largely scripted. So it's pretty unfulfilling as a strategy session but the president sometimes wants to talk policy with us and in the past has either invited us to the white house or we go over to the republican national committee for those lunches for whatever reason the president wanted to come uh, and join our regular lunch today so so he was he was was that
0: was that because for the first time that you and ted cruz got in those giant puffy sumo wrestler costumes
1: and, and fought it out no, it wasn't that. Okay, anyway. Yeah, there's there's very rarely a stage at lunch, but if there <laughs> if there were, I'd be happy to wrestle people. I probably wouldn't do it in a sumo outfit, but whatever. Keep going. <laughs> all right. the editorial. Line.
0: Anyway, so how'd it go? You know, was it exciting? Was it thrilling? Was it um was it a tour de force of, of did he, did you work out all of the tax issues that needed to be worked out?
1: Yeah, we got into great detail on tax reform. Uh, we were in, we in paragraphs, subparagraph, section line uh, stuff, moving around commas and periods. No, it, um, so I, I think I probably shouldn't reveal too much of what was said in substance there, but I will say that it's a fairly flat, Democratic. I mean, it's culturally uh, a room full of people that are wrestling through issues and therefore you don't have a lot of staff there. There's no pampering, so there's a buffet line. And I think nobody really thought of the awkwardness of nobody having planned to get a plate of food for the president, so all the rest of us were there before the president was there just to show respect for when he arrived. And when he got there and was shown to his seat at kind of the head table, there was no food and someone had to elbow him and say, there's the buffet line over there. So that was, that was kind of funny as the president got up and had to try to find his way through the the buffet line. And then ultimately decided it probably wasn't worth trying to eat since he was going to be called to the the podium soon. But then it had, again, I I don't think I will go into the substance of it here, but it had a bit of a feel of how he does his rallies. He, he stood at the podium and, and kind of, you know, discussed a broad range of topics for for pushing an hour it was it was kind of we were kind of all over the place
0: Ed, was there was there a did he remind you of his huge win in the electoral college
1: there were no trucks or graphs uh that <laughs> we covered we, we covered we covered certain state point totals and numbers or uh-huh. maybe kind of remem- remembered point totals and numbers but i think we should keep moving here
0: all right i i, I can take a hint i just you know, I, you know this, is, this is the extent of my uh journalistic interviewing skills on display right here. So hey, when are you uh when are you going to come out with uh, your your
1: your endorsement for Roy Moore? Uh, so, you know, I've got I got three little kids, and I commute, and I have a day job, and I think that we radically underinvest in cyber, which is going to remake the future of war. So I, in general, uh, don't weigh in on many regional races around the country. So honest truth, I've not followed the Alabama Senate race closely, but it looks to me from afar – um, a lot like you know, what's wrong with the political parties in the nation writ large. It's sort of a a microcosm version of that, as I see. I, I think the first of all, it's worth remembering that the founders didn't want parties, and that Washington's farewell address, when he leaves office eight years into. You know, the Constitution is ratified uh, in 1787, 88, and Washington takes office in in 89. And in 1797, as he's leaving office, he gives this farewell address to the country, largely about the dangers of permanent political alignments and factions and parties. And that was kind of the basic catechetical document in America until at least the Civil War. More people read Washington's farewell address than read the Declaration of Independence. And so this, this argument against parties is deep in our DNA, and we forget about it a lot. At present, but I think that these parties right now are not just bad examples of what Washington was worried about. They're just bad examples of organizations that have any coherence or clarity. I think we've got two very, very terrible parties right now. I think that they're empty, um, they're broken, they don't stand for much, they don't inspire anybody. I I think a a simple way to think about what the parties were supposed to be, uh, you know, in the, the best version of 1945 to 1970, maybe, is Republicans and Democrats were supposed to agree on limited government and in universal human dignity and all the things that make us Americans. And therefore, all the reasons that we know that government doesn't give us rights. Government is our shared project to secure rights that we have by nature. And then once you got below those sort of architectural American things, then the Republican versus Democratic continuum was supposed to be small versus medium size. Uh, series about government intervention in the economy. The Republicans were limited government, but also small government. Democrats were limited government, but medium sized government. Now I don't know what the heck these parties stand for. I mean, I, I don't think people in my state do either. You. I think the Democratic Party is by and large, uh, the anti-Republican party and the all abortion all the time abortion Uber party. And I think that's what I see in Alabama is you have a guy who apparently used to have some pro-life sympathies and he found out to raise money as a national Democrat, you have to pledge that you're for abortion until like 36 hours after a baby's been born. Uh, then finally the baby has some sort of rights. I think it's nuts. Uh, and then you've got the Republican party that seems like the only thing we know how to talk about in common is just sort of euphemisms and rhetoric about tax cuts. And I'm for the tax reform uh, bill that we're working on right now, but there's no reason that I'd get out of bed and fly away from my kids, uh, you know, many, many days every week for mere rhetoric around tax cuts. That's not a big enough thing to unite a country or to unite a party. And it feels like this party that I'm a part of has gone post-constitutional in all sorts of fundamental ways. And, you know, we saw some of that in the 2016 election, but I, again, I'm not following Alabama closely, but you look at the Republican candidate there and it doesn't look to me like he's out there advancing any articulate agenda of what conservatism stands for. It sounds like a new kind of identity-based grievance politics that contradict a lot of the the point of E Pluribus Unum. I mean, I, I think it, there, it feels to me, and I think to most of my constituents, even though I'm the third most conservative guy in the Senate by voting record, and my state's one of the most conservative voter sets in the country. But when I'm home on weekends listening to people at, at football games and, and talking to people out harvesting, they, they hate both of these parties. And it, it feels like the Republican candidate in Alabama is also – you know, not persuasive to lots lot of the national politicians, but they just want the important stuff to be, to be power and politics. And we don't know how to talk about what limited government and universal human dignity are about. And so I think we're getting a new kind of identity politics of kind of white backlash grievance, which isn't surprising that the right would echo the left. It isn't surprising if you don't have principles and it feels like these parties don't have a lot of principles and the Alabama Senate race looks just that crappy to me. How's
0: that for, uh, Bearing my soul, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a that was that was An a good little rant soul. there. Yeah, I, I figured I'd let that one just ride out on its own. Yeah, I mean, look, where I understand you're in a difficult position. You're, you know, you're a sitting Republican senator and all that kind of stuff. But I'll just be on the record. I, I li- I really admire and like Mike Lee. I have more respect than a lot of people do for Ted Cruz. I have my disagreements with Rand Paul because I think some of his stuff is is too clever by half and he plays the same game as his dad did by always making the perfect the enemy of the good but these guys basically represent at least rhetorically or at least have claimed to represent the sort of goldwater reagan buckleyite you know tradition of conservatism i mean a little too populist, a little too you know strident at times but that's that's been their space and to come out so forcefully and endorse roy moore who thinks there should be religious tests who will not forthrightly say whether or not he thinks, uh, homosexuals, uh, should be put to death. (laughs) Um, you know, these are, these are, you know, you can have all sorts of positions on homosexuality and still it shouldn't, it shouldn't be pulling teeth to get someone to say, but of course they shouldn't be put to death. And I see Roy Moore as, you know, look, Luther strange, is a really boring guy, but by any objective, normal standard, he was more conservative than Roy Moore. He was more knowledgeable about policy. He voted with Trump all the time. And Roy Moore to me represents a temper tantrum on the right. And, and, also a surrender to identity politics and grievance stuff and all that stuff that you're saying. But I don't, I don't see how we get out of this for a while. And I know it seems to me I think you're right that both it's funny both parties are sort of it seems to me are both dying on their feet and they're using They're like two staggering boxers who need to prop each other up to stand up. And if one goes I think the other one goes almost immediately after because so much of what it means to be a Democrat is to not be a Republican and vice versa.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think you can be a good Republican if you're not a great American first. And I want that to be true of the Democrats too, right? You got to be out there celebrating the first amendment before you get to policy differences. Cause if you don't, if you don't defend, I'm worried about religious liberty. Like, I actually think it's under threat. I think that the left is really disinterested in religious liberty. I think the left on campuses is clearly disinterested in free speech and free assembly. You see, the ACLU has trouble hiring staffers now because it turns out a lot of their staffers don't want to defend civil liberties. They just want to advance progressivism, even under the title of an organization that says about civil liberties. And so I think on the right, we have lots of people who are disinterested in freedom of the press. You don't ultimately get freedom of the press or freedom of speech unless you understand their relationship to each other. So to your point on on religious tests, if I'm worried, so I'm an evangelical Christian and I'm worried about the future of religious liberty, I feel an obligation to defend Sikhs and to defend Muslims on why we believe in principled pluralism in America. And so you can't have people running for office, and again, I I don't know the particulars of what Morris said, but as as it's been reported, you can't have people running for office saying that being a Muslim would be a disqualification for being in Congress. The Constitution's pretty damn clear about not having religious uh, litmus tests. And I think the reason you have Uh, no litmus test is because we're a First Amendment society where the whole point of our country is that we believe in principle pluralism because the most important stuff can't be solved by government, right? We want government as the framework that protects all of us to to be able to fight for what we think is true, to try to persuade our neighbor, to invite him to church or synagogue or, or mosque, and try to persuade people that you're right about theology. And we protect each other's right to be wrong, right? I mean, that, that's the point of the First Amendment is that we want to have the ability to say, I disagree with you about X, Y, and Z that's far more important than politics, but I'm going to defend your right to be wrong about that thing because I believe in the power of ideas and I believe in the centrality of souls and full humans and government compulsion can't solve problems like that. I want to win you over to my side, but if, if you lose... That ability to defend a public square, to even defend the rights of people that disagree with you on important stuff, then you lose limited government, you lose freedom, and you lose all that's special about this country. It's just not good enough to say, oh, well, I'm for a guy because I think he will vote the right way on my policy views about this year's tax cut. That's not good enough.
0: Yeah, no, look, I I agree with you. And, you know, I have a book coming out called Suicide of the West, which gets into a lot of this stuff. And, you know, one of the reasons why I had such concerns about Donald Trump is I agree with you. The left is worse worse on a whole vast range of things about religious liberty, about free speech, about rejecting constitutional norms, about rejecting the role of the Constitution, about respecting the American tradition of, of, of uh, limited government, all of those sorts of things. But the reason why I'm I'm much more concerned about conservatives, and people get mad at me, well, you know, I get all this whataboutist stuff about, well, the left is worse about this, so why aren't you defending Trump, or why aren't you you know fighting for more Republican wins, is that if the Republican Party abandons conservatism, right, if if conservatism gets thrown by the wayside in the name of winning, it's a much bigger blow because it's been conservatism for the last century, give or take, that has been the the foremost and, all, and at times sole defender of a lot of these institutions and norms. And if, yeah. if conservatives don't defend it, that means it's just – it's purely a um, – it's a tr- purely a contest of will and power, um, and it has nothing to do with actually defending the things that make America great. And so if conservatism goes, then it's all over. And, I, and so I always hated this. America is only one is, is one election away from being over. You know, I think Sean Hannity began his radio show like that 10,000 times. And my view of America is is that if America is one election away from being over, it's already over. Yeah, because yeah. That's not well, what all
1: America's- well, Go ahead. The conservative way to say it is that we're always one generation away from the extinction of freedom because you have to persuade the next generation that we believe in minority rights. This, this is the Madisonian genius in the Constitution's construction, right? Is that everybody is supposed to view themselves as a creedal minority, that has identities that are way more important than their political positions, and that together we want, to come, we want to come together with lots of other creedal minorities so that together we become a majority that is against any populist majority trying to compel us to believe things that are more important than politics. And so I I think of it as rank ordered identities, right? Like I'm a Christian first, I'm a husband second, I'm a dad third, I'm an American fourth. Then I go down that list and I'm a conservative and I'm a Nebraskan and somewhere like 37th on the list, I'm a Republican. But the really important thing here is I believe the theological things that I believe first, but I take an oath as an American and as a public official for a time for a limited time uh, to serve in this kind of office to advance an American understanding. Standing at principled pluralism, which is prior to my policy preferences as a Republican. And so, to your point, if the Democrats have largely become a post constitutional party over the last couple of decades, The death of the Republican Party as it becomes post constitutional is truly a death because then you don't have a place from which to reform. And if you just have power politics all the time, not only do you lose what makes America special, you lose the sense of universal human dignity, you lose limited government, you lose the protection of minority rights to speech, assembly, press, religion, protest, et cetera, et cetera. But oh, by the way, people who really do only care about your policy preferences for taxes or whatever, you're going to lose too because the Democrats are always going to be better at identity politics than Republicans. And so I'm, I'm with you in being just so bored by these people who say, well, the Democrats are terrible, and they would have done this terrible thing. Therefore, we should race to do the terrible thing first. Actually, if you believe in America, you have to lay out a vision of what America believes about oaths and virtue and limits as the thing that you persuade people back toward, or you've already decided that we're post-suicidal. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, buy gold. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um,
0: it turns
1: uh, out a lot of the networks out there are advertising a lot of gold it turns out that the, the jeremiah ad might have a market
0: yeah no look i mean I, I, the commercials on on fox where i'm a contributor and you know and the other cable networks too i mean food insurance food security you know stock up on bottled water and ammo i mean and now you look at the nra ads and i'm very pro second amendment and I generally think the NRA gets a bad rap from the mainstream media and it's widely misunderstood because it's not – it doesn't have a stranglehold on politics. What has a stranglehold on the gun policy issue is that uh, that tens of millions of Americans want to have gun rights. So I've, I've always been a big defender of the NRA, but these these latest internet ads that they've been putting out, which have nothing to do with – almost nothing to do with gun rights and have everything to do with we are seconds away from – Marauding bands of of sort of motorcycle, um, you know, hooligans taking over our lives and 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 dragging our women folk out of our homes, it's it's fomenting paranoia and it's I think it's a really dangerous thing and it's, you see it all over the place now, where everyone is sort of trying to monetize panic, um and lack of faith of institutions in a way that i think is incredibly dangerous to the culture and and to our
1: politics yeah i mean so let me partly agree and partly disagree and then i should bail on you um we've had too much agreement for the last 10 minutes so i will only agree in part and then i'll disagree uh the agreement is uh the paranoia of all this stuff is highly dangerous and we we have data that shows people are reading far fewer books and they're watching far more news. And most of the news people are watching isn't news, whether on the populist right or on the progressive nutty left. um, There are people who are doing entertainment uh, as news, and it turns out clickbait life is the way you also lead up to a commercial break on cable. And so I, I agree with you that the selling of paranoia is bad. What I want to disagree with you is it turns out that for my family, stocking up on bottled water, uh, guns, ammo, beans, and firewood, because my wife hasn't persuaded me to buy the generator yet, we call that a really good weekend. So I don't <laughs> like your sort of arrogant city liver, sc- city liver skepticism of, uh, of the way we choose to spend our weekends in our shabby cabin down by the river. Uh, but we, we have filled it with, a, there's a secret uh, passage, and it's filled with guns and ammo and beans. And I want you to quit looking down on me, man. <laughs> look i
0: i i am very sympathetic to the prepper ethos and w- my wife and i we spend an enormous amount of time talking when we on long drives and stuff about how we what what our plan is when the chai come or when the zombie apocalypse comes and you know basically all the plans boil down to figuring out how quickly we can get to alaska where she's from and once we get there we are golden because it is just cabins guns in um, a large, large family with, with lots of resources up in the bush, and I, I get yeah. that I get that stuff, but this, this idea that the other side in our politics is like my point is, I, I, I like talking about how to respond to the zombie apocalypse or to the Chinese invasion. I'm, Red Dawn is still one of my favorite movies. I yeah. don't like that kind of talk about the Democrats. You know, yeah, or, right. or, or about, you know, or even Antifa, right? I mean, look, I, my basic policy towards Antifa is, you know, uh, lock them up, throw them in jail. You know, excuse me, officer, my, I suggest you use your nightstick. But um, at the same time, I don't think they are seconds away from some sort of Mad Max scenario where they burn our cities to the ground and the living envy the dead. And yet there's more and more of that kind of stuff in the culture, in the political culture, that I think is is really creepy and dangerous.
1: Yeah, and and, I mean, this isn't the time to do it. Since I'm, I'm, I'm bailing on your podcast, you have David French waiting in the wings, and he's more interesting than I am. But the way foreign intelligence services want to use info ops against us to make Americans think that there are more people about to overrun us is really significant. Like we, we just have lots of data now that shows that we've got foreign agencies that want to exacerbate social media panic and paranoia. And so our people's Estimates of the danger of things are completely out of scope with the reality of some of the things they're paranoid about. And there are people who are trying to use internal American divisions against us. It's the best way you could attack America. You're not going to win a hard power battle with us right now at sea or on land. But you can make Americans uh, so panicked and paranoid that, they, that we believe crazy things about how many internal domestic threats there are. But going back to your your. I think you admitted that everything is better in a prepper cabin, and I, I thought I heard you say something between the lines about it. even sex is better in a prepper cabin. But I think my time is expired, so I won't. I won't try to make you explain yeah, but yourself. I'm, the next
0: time we have you on, you're going to explain to me your formula for recycling your own urine. But we'll leave that for another time.
1: <laughs> Episode 307 of the <laughs> Remnant. <Run Myth>, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, man.
0: You stay safe out there.
1: Hey, I got I got enough guns. I got the ammo. We'll tell you the address later. Bye. All right, man. Bye.
0: All right. So we just finished with Ben Sass, and uh, uh, we're gonna go right to David French, who's on hold as we speak. Unfortunately, what just happened was after I stopped talking to Sass, I looked at the notifications on my phone and saw that Senator Flake was not going to run again in Arizona which basically means, as far as I can tell, that either Chemtrail Kelly Ward is going to be the next senator from Arizona, which is awesome, or the state gets flipped blue, which is what it is. So anyway, we're going to go straight to David French now. Hold on one second. All right, so I just got off the phone with uh, Ben Sass and right when I um, got off the phone with, with Senator Sass. I checked my notifications on my phone, and I saw that Jeff Flake had announced that he uh, is not going to be running for re-election, and I wish I could have asked him about it, because given the tirade that he had just given us, but because SAS is completely unqualified to talk about the zombie apocalypse and and and, and zombie battle, we had to bring in somebody else. We're going to talk about a little bit of both. I got David French here, my colleague from National Review. He is... One of the more refined gun nuts I know, but, he, but but he he loses out to Charlie Cook, who has that British accent, which makes all nuttery sound so much more civilized. Uh, but anyway, David, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm I'm always going to sound like a redneck next to Charlie Cook. Yeah, but that's true of everybody, you know. <laughs> true. It'd be actually kind of fun to get Charlie to read a whole bunch of like classic redneck white trash things, like just like a recipe of how to cook possum or something and <laughs> see how dignified it sounds. <laughs> so David, what do you think about the fact that Jeff Flake's not going to run again in Arizona? Yeah, I'm not,
3: I'm not terribly surprised really. I mean, look, this, this was a guy who his approval ratings were his approval ratings had slid into the toilet he was being ridiculed across much of the base of the right. And he, you know, he had seemed to lost stomach for the fight. So I don't, I don't, uh, it doesn't surprise me. And I understand why he did it. I, I'm not sure, you know, what he saw in the Republican Party that he still, it, it, it looks often like he just doesn't want to be a
0: part of what's currently happening with the GOP in Washington. Yeah, no, I, I, What I, what I find depressing about the Flake thing is it apparently has absolutely zero to do with his voting record or his policy positions entirely to do with the fact that he wasn't bending the knee to Donald Trump. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that's no way to run a railroad, but I mean, I guess that's the world that we, that's why we can't have nice things now, but well, you know, this is, this is similar to the Bob,
3: Bob Corker situation. Now Corker's of course, like gone full throated after Trump, But I had some friends forward me some GOP polling here in Tennessee when Corker said months ago that, uh, you know, some did the effect that the administration was acting out like it was out of control. And about 60 percent of Tennessee primary voters had said that that comment from Corker made them less inclined to vote for Corker in the primary. That's how important it was for Tennessee primary voters to support Donald Trump. And I'm sure Flake's looking at similar kinds of things at Arizona and where it's, it's loyalty to
0: Trump above everything. Yeah. But you know, it's, but what's weird about it is, and you live in more pro Trump country than I do, obviously. Uh, I mean, you've written about it a bunch. And I, I I recently was having this conversation with Bill Crystal, you know, which apparently disqualifies me from the right to live or something, (laughs) but Um when you actually go out in real America and talk to really pro-Trump people, one on one, they can tolerate a lot of criticism of Donald Trump. I mean, they get it, they understand that the tweeting's not great. Every now and then, maybe one out of ten or one out of twenty of them really are sort of Bill Mitchell Kool-Aid drinkers. Right. But but most of them are like, you know, we gotta give this guy a chance, he's better than Hillary. I mean, all these familiar arguments, but if you say to them, you know, he's he's making some mistakes or I wish he could get his act together. They don't get furious at you interpersonally. But when a politician says it, somehow that's the kiss of death. And I think it's a weird sort of enabling political culture. You know, it's sort of like the old Irish thing where I can criticize my brother, but you can't. Right. And it's so tribal and weird. And, and anyway, I think it's yeah. not going to end well. But
3: Well, and the dynamic, I think, is different when, say, you or I speaks to somebody and says, hey, we've got this problem, this problem with Trump. Than more than, say, a Jeff Flake or a Bob Corker does, because there's that background level of hostility that exists towards GOP folks in Congress and the GOP establishment. So they're really looking at them with sort of no grace, no forgiveness.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, and,
3: and so there's that background. And Corker was already somebody who was not sort of seen. And, and again, you know, when I when I when I talked about this poll, it was of likely Tennessee primary voters, which is right. certainly not all of the Tennessee GOP. And they, that was already a group. I, I, if I remember correctly, have to, he won uh, his primary back in his, for his first term. Uh, running, he ran against other more conservative candidates. That, they kind of split the vote. So he was never sort of the, quote, unquote, true conservative's choice right. for Tennessee senator. Uh, and, and so that, that has a role to play, too. They're looking, they're looking at him with
0: a, through a different lens yeah, I gotta say, I've never been a huge fan of Corker. I mean, I thought the Iran deal stunk on ice, and yes, uh, and he his positions on some public policy stuff that you know that's too deep in the wonky weeds to get into, I was never a huge fan of. And I also am not a, a while I want people to speak their mind and speak honestly about the president and about politics and all of that. I am not overwhelmed with admiration for politicians who only speak forcefully. And honestly, when they're not seeking reelection, <laughs> um, what? <laughs> so I'm not I'm not inclined to like make him my new dashboard saint or my Thomas More <laughs> kind of thing. It's not no. he, he's not been a profile in courage. He was a huge suck up to Trump in the beginning, and oh, it's yeah. only you know when he didn't get Secretary of State and all that stuff does he you know find his his backbone? Anyway, enough of all of this silly stuff. We got to talk about something important. What did you think of the premiere of Walking Dead? You know,
3: I I felt like and I was feeling like this last season that we've transitioned from a zombie show to Mad Max with sort of a dash of zombies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's it's we're kind of now it's more like a post apocalyptic action show and which is fine. I enjoyed it. I I, I thought it was a, a good premiere, although I mean, two things, one. You've got the most hated man in the you know Walking Dead universe in your sights, and you have a conversation with him. Uh, just shoot him, and then tell all the, the lieutenants while they're looking at his at Negan's body. Okay, we're gonna, not going to kill you too unless you surrender. If you surrender,
2: right. but
3: you know you got to have the monologuing, uh, I guess for dramatic effect. But you know at the whole time you're sitting there. Well, you really hate him, Rick. Just take your shot. That bothered me. And the other thing is you know I I just got to say the show alternates between our heroes being SEAL Team 6 and utterly inept. Yeah. Um and and that's that's been a theme from the beginning and it's just it it annoys me a little bit but overall I'm quibbling with an hour of television
0: that I that I actually liked. What about you? Yeah, so I sort of have the same position. I mean, I I, I you and I were sort of on the same page about Game of Thrones. I was just one click more skeptical than you were about it last <laughs> season, but right. So, so I always felt bad. I always kept. I, you would go in the corner and say something great about it, and I would say, "I agree, I agree, I agree," but and then I would nitpick. <laughs> and I sort of have the same thing. I, we're, we seem to be on the exact same page about Walking Dead this season. I um, um, first of all, the the not shooting Negan. And for listeners who don't know, Negan's this very bad guy. He's done some terrible things. He's this warlord, and um there was this the beginning of what's apparently going to be this big war was set up in the premiere on Sunday, and they had like this fifteen-minute conversation where the guy was unarmed standing out in the open and they all had guns pointed at him and no one just <laughs> popped him up. And it, it reminded me of that scene in the Austin Powers movie where Dr. Evil's kid just starts Hectoring Dr. Evil in you know, Seth Green saying, you know. Dad, just shoot him. He's right there. Just take a gun, let yes. do his head and shoot him. Why do you have to like feed him to alligators or whatever you know, whatever it was they were doing? And it's like the idea that everything is about survival and nitty gritty stuff, but we are going to monologue, you know, out of The Incredibles for ten minutes for exposition purposes was really infuriating. Also, you're more of a military guy, you know, than I am. You know this stuff better than I do. What was the point of just shooting at a lot of windows? I don't. I don't. I don't. I didn't get that. I mean, it wasn't clear they were shooting at anybody. Yeah, they were not shooting at anybody. And here, you know, you've
3: got ammunition as a finite resource, although it, it seems to be practically infinite as a matter, you know, in in the show. But it, it's a finite resource in a post-apocalyptic world, and they must empty ten thousand rounds at a warehouse, shooting windows out for no. I, it, it was, I, yeah, that was absolutely maddening. No, to their credit, I do like how they compensated for their lack in numbers by recruiting the services of a gigantic zombie herd. That's a a good way of using the zombie apocalypse to your advantage. But yeah, just unloading on the side of a building seemed to me to be singularly unproductive. And then the military experience in me tells me, Rick, if you're trying to shoot Negan, take your weapon off full auto. Just go (laughs) shot by shot. (laughs) Because you'll never hit him full auto. But he didn't li- He wouldn't listen to my advice. See, I'm wondering. So you don't you don't watch Fear of the Walking Dead? I right? started. I, I watched the first full season, and then I I, I just I, I don't know why I didn't pick it up again. I kind of liked it.
0: Well, I I, I, I might know why because it's 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 not very good. It's it's different than good. <laughs> um, and it's it makes it makes the writing in. And Walking Dead seem leaps and bounds better, which I don't really understand. I don't understand how you can make a zombie apocalypse movie where you're you're affirmatively rooting for the zombies, our TV show, for <laughs> yeah. for most of the season. And that's the problem with Fear the Walking Dead. But I, I still watch it because, you know, the the forms must be obeyed. And I, once I invest in one of these shows, I have to see it through to the end. But I've, I'm wondering if the writers of Fear the Walking Dead or of Walking Dead are pissed off at the writers for fear of the walking dead, because they use the same technique essentially in the, towards the end of the last season of fear of the walking dead of guiding a zombie herd to an encampment. And you would think that like the producers would have talked to each other and said, Hey, you know, we're working on doing the same thing. Maybe you can find some (laughs) other plot device, but, um, right. But so, you know, that this season, the premiere was the worst rated premiere in like three or four years. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it's the fruit of the poisonous Negan tree.
3: You know, I, I I'll admit after the the last season premiere where you had you know the eeny meeny miny mo basically who's going to get killed and then this incredibly vicious, brutal beat down that just seemed to be almost like torture porn. Yeah. I kind I tuned it out a little bit. I just thought you know I think they they stretch the goodwill of the audience a little bit too much. And, you know, and so I think a lot of folks were like, OK, I'm just going to tune out until we get through this Negan stage. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's how I felt. I, I got I, I drew myself back into the show just because I've been watching it for so stinking long. I want to kind of see it through. But, yeah, that was and I, it, I went back and I looked at the numbers because I was, I was thinking about, you know, why is it that, you know, was this a widespread feeling? And I think that the numbers dropped. Yeah, Uh, from like 17 or 18 million. You watched that premiere last season down to like 10 million. The next one, that's that's huge. Um, So I don't I don't think we're alone in that.
0: No, I think that's right. I I, I do have to say, though, when when you said the fruit of the poison, Negan tree, part of the problem is just the guy who plays Negan is really annoying. And I like that. I like that actor. But the character is just drawn badly. They they seem to think that he's got charisma like the governor did. And he doesn't. (laughs) Right. You just want someone to shoot him and just move on, you know? Yeah. But um, so one of the things I do like about the Negan line is or the Negan storyline is I think I wrote about this for NR at one point. The whole post apocalyptic narrative arc of, of Walking Dead actually follows the the track of human civilization. Mansur Olsen has this whole concept of what he calls the stationary bandit as the first provider, he calls it the he was a provider of the first blessing blessing of the invisible hand, which is order. And right. what happened was it used to just have roving bands of tribes, right, and, and little platoons of people. And then they would all, as agriculture comes up, the warlords would raid and, and you would hit the point of diminishing returns because no one would invest in crops if they knew that some Vikings were going to come in and take it all away. And then what happens is you get the stationary bandit, the stationary warlord, who protects people and then um, doesn't leave. He's no longer a marauder. Right. He plants his stakes and he basically becomes a monarch and he realizes, and he extends the time horizon of civilization so that um, you know that if you can get, if you give, you let people keep 50% of their crops, um, you'll get more over the long haul than if you take 100% of them now. And right. that's what we're, that's what I kind of liked about this, this sort of these eruption of these communities is that this is how civilization actually started, and we're just seeing a do-over where the zombies basically are stand-in for everything from disease to natural disaster to everything else. And I kind of like that stuff.
3: Well, I thought that, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I thought that they finally, they finally cut their way out of the storyline rut of the five or so seasons of, we're going to find a safe haven, oops, it's not a safe haven, we're going right. to go find another safe haven. Oops, not a safe haven. I mean, after a while, that gets a, a little repetitive. And now we're at okay. Wait a minute. You actually see the beginnings of a society here, but this that's that's viable. That's got you know the resources to live to to sustain itself. But it's ruled by a despot. So let's overthrow the despot and install something better. And you know that's a I think that's a preferable storyline. But you're exactly right. I, I I think I've honestly disliked Negan more than I disliked Joffrey, and I, and and I hated looking at Joffrey on the TV screen. But yeah, he was a better yeah. he was a better drawn villain, just because he was, uh, you know, I just think he played it better. Uh, and he, he, there wasn't so much he wasn't Joffrey wasn't eating up so much stinking screen time. I mean they let they let yeah. Negan monologue constantly.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, and yeah. You, you just want somebody to take that shot.
0: Um, I, I want to switch gears. One last question, because we went long with Sass and and um, but we're gonna have you back. We're gonna keep up on the zombie stuff. But um, I got into this thing. I was talking to Senator Sass about uh the NRA. You know these new Dan, Dana Loesch NRA ads. Yep. That are um and and you're as I told listeners, you're a big Second Amendment guy. I'm a big defender of the Second Amendment on constitutional grounds, but I really don't like those ads, and I tried to get sass to talk about it and um, and he agreed with me about fomenting paranoia as a bad thing but he vociferously defended the prepper lifestyle because he said <laughs> where I come from loading up on bottled water and supplies and ammo and guns that's called a great weekend and um, <laughs> I get that I understand that I, I have a little of that in me um, and I, I'm pretty sure you have a little of that in you <laughs> <laughs> um, but where do you come down on the NRA stuff and on the sort of prepper lifestyle? Okay, to me, they're two totally different
3: things. One, the NRA stuff—I like Dana. I don't like those ads. Uh yeah. I, I like Dana I, too. Yeah, I, I just don't. You know, number one, they're whole hog casting that these these ads. Really, don't have much to do at all with the Second Amendment. I mean, they're they're essentially they they just are sort of bright bardian. Us against them. Uh, let's protect the pres. Circle the wagons around the president. Sort of uh, ad making and against with a sort of a dark and apocalyptic tone. And then I think it makes a lot of people nervous because these are coming not from say a Breitbart but from a gun rights organization. So there's sort of this overtone that well th- this has something to do with guns here, right? Right. And and is very dark and ominous and related to the directly to the president. I I just you know it. it Look, I sympathize with the notion that uh, that says I've got a tough ad making job. If we've pretty much won at the federal and state level, and we can't really conjure up huge threats to gun rights anymore, um, but this this sort of saying, okay, we on the NRA are absolutely, positively all in on this uh, kind of Trumpian rhetoric about the media, uh, combined with these apocalyptic overtones. I don't, I just don't like it. I, I think yeah. it's
0: That's how I feel.
3: Yeah, I feel it's just it's very deeply divisive and paranoia inducing, and I don't like it at all. I think it's off mission for the NRA. Now, the prepper lifestyle, I have to confess, uh, three years ago, my wife and I had a after reading this book or two years ago called One Second After about an EMP attack, which I know was exaggerated. And I know that threat is, over. you know, is overdone. Uh, we still we made a New Year's resolution resolution to be non weird preppers, so we have uh, partially fulfilled that in that we have a pretty decent supply of food, we have a pretty decent supply of basic necessities uh, in case anything were ever to happen. But it was our goal. Uh, the the key part of the non weird preppers is we don't dwell on the apocalypse. We just have a kind of nice stash in case something bad happens. So that we're, we're kind of, we, we, you could call us, um, you've heard the phrase happy warriors, joyful
0: mm-hmm. preppers. Okay. That's fair. That's fine. Like I live in DC. We know if there's an EMP attack or a chemical weapons attack, the only thing to do is get out of Dodge. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm kind of hoping cause my wife works in government that, and I know people in government that maybe I'll get like a 15 minute head start. <laughs> um, but if we can load up our house all we want, if we're in the, the wrong wind pattern it's over for us so you know our our entire zombie apocalypse preparedness plan involves finding our way to alaska and that's our <laughs> ter- that's our terminus cuz we've got everything up there um, well the, you know but we're tennessee's
3: a little closer than alaska so all you need jonah is a bug out bag and a full tank of gas so get your bug out bag your full tank of gas and i'll let you in my defense perimeter i promise
0: I, 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 I'm going to take you up on that. And, you know, the thing is, there are a few people like that we could sort of leapfrog like MacArthur um, uh, from like your place to Ben Sass's place and just make our way up to Alaska um, or at least into range of one of they have those planes to get to their cabins out in the bush just to get into their their flight path, you know, range. And uh, so I'll take you up on it. Anyway, thanks for coming yeah. on. And well, thanks uh, for having me. And I'll see you at the NRI dinner tomorrow night. Right. Yes, that's right. All right, man. Have In a the good Big one. Apple. See you then, Artie. Bye. Right. Bye. All right. So thanks again to my colleague David French, and thanks to uh, Ben Sass. And my apologies for completely buttering the American League joke, which I gather was hilarious to everybody who caught it. And uh, we ran pretty long with both conversations. So even though this is now, we're going to try and keep the various and sundry stuff. At the end of the show, some people thought we shouldn't have it front-loaded in the beginning. And so we're just going to run through a couple quick things. Uh, first of all, by most, the, the consensus seems to be that the thus Sprach Zarathustra music at the beginning is awful or unsatisfactory, so we are soliciting suggestions for intro music. Problem is, is that a lot of cool intro music has to be bought and paid for, and that violates all sorts of uh that violates the culture of national review in ways that I don't I don't want to get on the cross side of um I would love to do instead sort of a fun montage of movie sound bites you know stuff from like you know the warriors can you dig it and we're not watusis but apparently that costs money too so if anybody has ideas of 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 either free or cheap better intro music or intro setup um, I love the Barney Miller theme music, but I don't think I think that costs money as well. Uh, please let us know; suggestions are welcome. And uh, I also, oh, I want to congratulate uh, my uh, my Igor, my Gimp, uh, Jack Butler, who ran the uh, Marine Corps Marathon last week in an apparently fantastic time.
2: Yeah, I ran a two thirty four twenty nine, good enough for fifteenth place, and fifteenth place out of how many people? I think there are about thirty thousand people there. Wow. And among the ranks was the son of Bill Kristol. I learned from Bill Kristol's weekly newsletter, to which you should all subscribe. I'll say that so that he doesn't do something mean to me after what I'm about to say. And the thing I'm going to say now is that I handily defeated Bill Kristol's son by about an hour and a half in the marathon. So
0: Well, so for the the MAGA people out there, because I know there's so many MAGA people Follow this podcast, uh, you will now be some sort of cult hero for you have crushed the never trumper cuck icon Bill Crystal's progeny. i um, in a feat of physical will and strength in Nietzschean fashion.
2: Yeah, and I can't wait for Bill Crystal to not notice me the next time I'm on the Acela, which he, I'm sure he has no idea who I am.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know Bill. Actually, I just recently recorded a conversations with Crystal podcast th- or video thing, which should be up fairly soon. It was fun and it was interesting. But I can say with almost absolute certainty that not only does he not know who you are, I'm not sure you would be visible to him were you to enter the room while he was there. <laughs> That's the way I want it. Um He'll never expect me. And uh so Mike, should we continue with the sci-fi sound effects or no?
3: I think we should. Uh people some people complain about the blaster sound. So we'll we'll try to get some things mixed up. And we're also we're gonna look at the uh space shuttle or not space shuttle spaceship uh sound effect contest and see if we can get enough sounds off the internet to to make that work
0: okay all right we'll identify i mean it. this week if since we talked about zombies if you want the sound of like the butt of a shotgun crushing a zombie skull uh that might Something
3: work like that. i was told someone almost drove off the road because of the wilhelm scream uh-huh. into in the car so you're gonna tr- we're gonna try to avoid that
0: but, yeah the wilhelm scream generated a lot of email and controversy out there which i was not i i i You know, my wife calls you guys my nerd boys. I feel like I should lose my decoder ring because I did not know what the Wilhelm... I mean, I knew what the Wilhelm scream was in terms of the sound, but I did not know the full backstory of the Wilhelm scream, which is uh, kind of interesting. In terms of dog updates, the only thing I have to say is this morning, uh, the dumb spaniel, which is sort of redundant, uh, was so excited to go to the park that she tried to jump out of the car window while we were moving and I had to grab her by the scruff of her back, and she fell to the ground, and it was awful, and I was very cross with her, but she's okay. And the problem is she's so hyper that when she gets excited to go play tennis ball, she starts doing laps around the car, and it's not particularly safe, but I don't know how to restrain her either because um, she's an insane spaniel. Other than that, we have the AI prom tonight, so we got to get going. Um, it's a black-tie affair. Jack, you're not going because you're opposed to... Black Tie Affairs?
2: I, I don't feel like dancing. I'm too sore for my marathon. That's, it.
0: That's a very manly excuse. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We're still uh, eager to get uh, listener appreciation, a listener comments, feedback, all the rest. We really, really appreciate all the five-star reviews and all the subscriptions. It matters a lot. I think starting next week, I believe, we're going to have ads. Uh, I'm not sure for what yet. I actually look forward to this because... When I went to high school in the 1980s, I, I was not a huge Howard Stern guy. I was a Howard Stern guy because you had to be a oh, Howard yeah. Stern guy, but I wasn't a huge... But my, a bunch of my friends were huge Howard Stern guys, and to this day, I can still run through all of the ads that he, like, personally was a spokesman. E. Vincent Luggage was huge, and, you know, he was one of the first guys who really put Snapple on the vet, and, and I still can't look at some of these products or think about some of them without talking about them like I'm Howard Stern. But I'm not Howard Stern, just to be very clear about that. Anyway, uh, do we have any other pressing issues? No? I'm, yeah, I'm set. All right, we're done. Thanks for tuning in, and i uh, will see you next week. We won't see you, but you'll hear me or something. Bye.